Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm Jordan Schneider here today with Ona Hathaway and Scott Sapiro, both professors at the Yale Law School. They most recently wrote The Internationalist, subtitled How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. Scott and Ona, thanks so much for, for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Jordan. So while this is a, a book not specifically on China, um, in talking about shifting global world order, China's, of course, uh, going to be central to that conversation. So just two days ago, the People's Daily, um, com uh, the Chinese party's uh, main uh, mouthpiece, uh, published an article which said that um, the world needs China as all humans are living today with a shared future. Um, that, in turn, creates broad strategic room for our efforts to uphold pe peace and development and gain an advantage. So shifting the world order towards China's terms is certainly something that's in the back of the mind of the, um, the senior party leadership. Uh, so today in this episode, we're going to explore the last time that uh, main, uh, you know, backbone of the global legal order shifted. Uh, and uh, to lead us into that conversation, we have a great um, new piece of scholarship out that we're going to discuss. Um, so to start off, uh, could I could we could I first ask you guys a personal question about what first brought you into studying international law in the first place? Well, I uh, will take this one to start off. I mean, I have been interested in international law for a very long time. Um, uh, I think it's it's fascinating um, because, of course, it's a way in which global legal challenges can be effectively addressed. Um, and um, and as an area of study, it's it's especially challenging because there's so many moving parts. Um, it's sort of like saying that you study domestic law. I mean, there's so many things going on under international law. Um, and so that's also part of what really drew me to it. Um, and I've now been studying and thinking and writing about international law for nearly two decades. Um, and it's only become more interesting and important um, over the course of that time. Um, my interest in international law um, comes from the fact that I'm a legal philosopher and I study the nature of law. And um, so much of legal philosophy concerns domestic law, where you have a centralized um, enforcement mechanism. You have the state and you have courts and you have police. Um, and international law lacks a world state, lacks a world police, and uh, was really interested in how a legal system that lacks executive, an executive agency um, like domestic law works. And so um, Ona and I began talking about, about the particularities of international law and how different it is than domestic law. And it just seemed like a really um, interesting um, example of how um, you might have um, uh, rules in the absence of uh, physical coercion. Sure. So, so going into that again, you you talked about how the world is run by not a world police, but sort of norms. So, let's talk about the pre World War One world and what were the sort of operating assumptions that um, European nations had evolved um, through the through the through the Middle Ages and beyond. Um, I started um, in, in my first answer to you, I said that um, international law doesn't have um, centralized physical coercion. Um, there are no uh, world police. But before 1928, um, um, there was um, physical coercion. It just wasn't centralized, meaning that any time a state had violated the rights, the legal rights, a rule vis-a-vis -vis another state, um, that state had the right to use force in order to right the wrong. Now, that use of force was called war. Um, and so before 1928, the basic rule of what we call the old world order um, was that if a state had been wronged, it had the right to use physical force in order to right that wrong. So one of the things you, you talk about is that it's not not only the right, but also um, the justification that uh, states 
uh, wanted to publicize uh, war manifestos you guys focused on in particular, which I thought was a fascinating source. Um, could you explain what that was and what the point of these documents were? One of the fascinating documents that you, you used to illustrate this concept of what um, triggered war uh, were war manifestos. They were found across the world um, and sort of reflect differences in, 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 in values as well as what um, sovereigns decided was and, was, was and wasn't worth fighting over. So could you talk a little bit about this source and what you were able to glean from it? Yeah, so when we were um, studying the period um, that Scott was just describing, the Old World Order, we stumbled across these documents um, that were called war manifestos. And they were um, documents we'd never really heard of before, at least I'd never heard of before, this idea that states would issue these manifestos when they went to war that would lay out their reasons for going to war. And when we started reading them, we found that they were... um, amazing treasure trove um, of information about why states were uh, going to war, what all their various reasons were for going to war. And um, the reasons that they included were all kinds of things that today would be considered utterly illegitimate. Um, So things like uh, uh, wife stealing, (laughs) but even more mundane things like uh, property destruction or interference with trade relations or debt collection or violations of international treaties. And so we realized that one way that we could really document how different um, the old world order was from the from the world that we live in today was to go through and catalog all of the reasons um, that states were giving in these war manifestos. And so that was one of the sources that we looked to to try and understand not just what did um, the treatise writers say about war during this era, but what were states actually doing and how were states themselves defending their uh, decision to go to war? Uh, Can I just uh, add that um, these manifestos are incredibly interesting to read, and we collected a little over 400 of them, and we put them online. So if you, uh, and they they go from, Fourteen ninety-two to nineteen forty, nineteen thirty-nine, um, and so if uh, on a Saturday afternoon you have nothing to do, you can go to our website, theinternationalistbook.com. Under the data section, you'll you, we have all the manifestos um, posted, and you can uh, click through them and and read them. It's quite interesting. You got to do a little better tease than that, Scott. So what? Um, what's which one was your favorite? Oh, definitely, definitely the first one um, from 1492, which, as Ona mentioned, um, was about wife stealing. So uh, Maximilian the Fir- uh, Maximilian the first wrote um, the first um, printed war manifesto, uh, uh, and he justified his uh, going to war against Charles VIII because Charles VIII stole his wife, Anne of Brittany, um, and that uh, was really amazing. Um, to, to us to see um, uh, somebody not just uh, openly admitting that somebody stole his wife, but um, trumpeting as the reason that he had the right to wage war against another country. So definitely my favorite. Well, I mean, he's, he's calling back to Homer, right? This is, a, this is an ancient tradition in, in, uh, in, in Western, uh, uh, Western martial history. No, absolutely right. So the thing, <laughs> it is it is true. So you have the rape of the Sabine women. You have Helen of Troy. Um, but um, uh, I, I kind of thought that was um, uh, um, was far was a justification for war that was maybe fictional and much far much farther in time. I was really shocked to see um, the first printed war manifesto uh to be about that um and um it's actually if you read latin it's actually very funny um so uh i i for all the you latin readers out there um uh, do yourself a favor i'm sure the um the the classics uh reading china econ talk uh uh venn diagram has a lot of overlap in there but um uh, if you're out there please please let us know uh so one of the interesting concepts uh that uh triggered or didn't trigger a lot of wars was the concept of uh, neutrality and the importance of countries staying um outwards the uh, staying staying you know 100 percent 
um, not in intervening on either side of a battle. Um, this uh, you guys focused on in particular, one of the reasons uh, that the treaty um, uh, treaties in the U.S. Constitution uh, have so much power is the fact that the founders were really scared of them tripping over this uh, neutrality uh, concept. So could you speak a little bit about that and how that how that evolved over the over the years? Um, yes, yeah, so I'll speak to that. So I think in some sense that was the aspect of the old world order that was most foreign to us and in fact launched our um, our, our project. So um, it turned w- what we discovered was that when political scientists had done studies of economic sanctions imposed um, by neutral states on belligerents, um, they had no examples before World War I. And that was really curious to us because it seemed like economic sanctions should have always been a tool in states' toolkits. And so we were really quite surprised to to see the absence of economic sanctions before World War One, And as we um, did research, we found that the reason why uh, economic sanctions um, were not imposed was because there was a legal duty against imposing economic sanctions. That is, because both states had the legal right of war, um, when there was a war, the belligerents could not be interfered with by other states lest that interfere, that violate, infringe upon their right of war. Um, in Hamilton, the uh, there's the Cabinet Battle too, is all about the duty that the United States had not to uh, favor France over Great Britain, because if they favored France over Great Britain, um, that would be an act of war, because that would be interfering with Great Britain's right to engage uh in force in order to enforce its rights. So un, uh, kind of astonishing to us at least was that before 1928 war was legal but economic sanctions were illegal because they were violations of uh, duties of neutrality that neutral states had not to interfere with the belligerents right of war. So can we talk a little bit about how these rules of war played out in Asia? Um, you know, as you can, as you could imagine, the um, the conceptions of interstate relations um, when China was an emperor, an empire, not a state, and Japan was sort of doing its own thing um, in isolation for a number for for a, a couple of centuries. Um, when they bumped up bumped up into this um, this rule system, it initially was a very foreign encounter. So could 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 you two talk a little bit about how this dynamic played out? Yeah, so um, one of the most fascinating parts of um, writing the book for me was discovering this um, this period and the ways in which the encounter between the West um, and Asia brought international law to uh, Asia at the point of a gun. Um, so uh, we describe in the book um, at some length um, the way in which the United States really was responsible for forcing Japan open um, to international uh, trade and diplomacy. Japan famously had been closed for um, hundreds of years at that point, had very limited trade um, with uh, the Netherlands and with China, but otherwise was largely cut off from the rest of the world. And and the United States sent uh, its... uh, uh, military commander, Commodore Matthew Perry, um, to force Japan into a treaty of friendship. Um, uh, and basically he showed up with his uh, steamboats and said, you know, open up to us and to trade and enter into this treaty of friendship, commerce and navigation or else. Um, and uh, Japan uh, resisted um but ultimately recognized that there was no alternative. Um, they weren't able to compete um, with the uh, with the armaments that the West had, and so conceded to the agreement. And they learned this lesson about how international law works. This is very poignant um, moment at which the the Japanese um, leaders are meeting with. Um, 
with the Americans and say, you know, what is this thing, this law of nations? Um, and they're desperate to learn what these rules are of the system. They don't even know the basics. And they send um, one of their scholars, um, young scholars off, Nishi Amani. Um, initially, he was going to go to the United States, but then the Civil War breaks out. Um, so it's not a good time to go study in the United States. So instead, he goes off to the Netherlands. Um, and he studies the rules of international law. In fact, he happens to study with a scholar who is at that very moment discovering a lost manuscript of Hugo Grotius, who is the father of um, the old world order and in international law, as we described in the first part of the book. So that by this strange coincidence, um, Nishi Amani really imbibes directly the rules of the old world order from Hugo Grotius and from the great scholar of, of Hugo Grotius at the time, um, Vissering, um, and brings those rules back to Japan. And then Japan, fascinatingly, starts playing by the rules it's just learned. Um, and immediate, almost immediately, within a, a, a few decades, um, starts uh, doing to its neighbors what has been done to it. Um, so shows up um, in Korea and almost perfectly reenacts the same set of events that had been done to them by Commodore Perry. They almost reenact that verbatim um, with Korea, forcing Korea into a trading relationship um, with Japan. So part of the story here is really about the spread of international law and the way in which force is used to um, bring international law to Asia um, and how then Asia learns the rules of the Western legal order and then figures out how to play by the game very effectively. China uh, was definitely a laggard in this regard, having um, basically gotten, uh, you know, taken advantage of first by the, the Europeans and then by the Japanese. Um, you know, this is certainly a function of their just like weaker military um, uh, power, but also um, uh, the, a failure of the um, of the of the late emperors to really understand what what was at stake and how um, you needed to interact with these foreign countries differently in order to to get to get successful outcomes. So um, fascinating. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. And we'll come back to Asia um, soon. But first, I want to uh, now I want to talk about how these these rules start changing in the first half of the 20th century. So what were the uh, who were the key players and what was the uh, what was the impetus here? Well, after World War One, of course, um, everyone is desperate to find a way to prevent war from happening again. Um, and the uh, the Treaty of Paris and the Versailles Treaty um, uh, is, you know, that ends the war. The United States refuses to join it. Um, and so the League of Nations is kind of hobbled from the start. Um, it's a promising model, but um, is, you know, plagued from the beginning with, with difficulties. And so that doesn't seem like a sufficient solution to the problem. And there are many people trying to figure out other alternatives, other ways to to end war or to bring an end to war. And, and in fact, the League of Nations, while a promising model, is built very much on the old world order principles, which is that if you break the rules of the League of Nations, uh, states can use war against you to enforce the rules. Um, so instead of a rejection of the old rules, it really is kind of the last gasp in many ways of the old rules. And there's some very unlikely characters um, who come up with the idea that ultimately um, wins the day. Um, one of them, one of the internationalists um, that the book is named for, is a bankruptcy lawyer in Chicago. His name is Sam and Levinson. Um, and he uh, really had had nothing to do with international law or international politics before. He really was just a pretty successful Midwest bankruptcy lawyer. Um, but he had two sons who had fought in the war, and he was really trying to think through how can we bring an end to war. And he comes up with this idea, which is kind of this outlandish, crazy idea, that the way to do that is to outlaw war. Um, it seems kind of absurd. Um, it seemed kind of absurd to some people then. It kind of seems absurd to people today. Um, but in fact, that idea begins to take root. Um, it, he founds a non-governmental organization to fight for it, the American Committee for the Outlawry of War. He works with politicians and scholars and thinkers across the spectrum and manages to get this um, movement underway for the Outlawry of War. And that ultimately um, sets the stage for um, a gathering in 1928 when um, the nations of the world come together to renounce 
war as a legal um, institution for enforcing the rules of the system. And um, by the end of the year, nearly every nation in the world had signed on to that treaty. It's the much maligned Calabrian Pact, or uh, also called the Treaty of Paris, that outlaws war. And that, we argue, really is what sets a new world in motion. So, so a deep cut question here. So the Lake Mohawk Conference on International Arbitration, I used to go to as a kid, and once I started studying this stuff, was, was fascinated to know that this little resort played a, played a role in this story. Could you talk a little bit about um, the idea of international arbitration? You know, who were these folks acting in the uh, late 19th century and, and how this idea kind of evolved into um, what ended up turning into the Kellogg-Briand Pact? Well, so the, there were many people who were working on these ideas. I mean, the Lake Mohonk Conference is, you know, a group of people who got together from the late 1800s to the early 1900s who are also interested in thinking through these kinds of problems. Um, they're among the many folks who are thinking about how do we bring an end to use of force. So um, certainly the internationalists that we write about were not the only ones who are thinking about this question, but really the... The idea of outlawing war, that that kind of innovation um, doesn't get going um, until around 1918 is when um, Salmon Levinson publishes his first article about this idea. And um, what's so innovative about the Calig-Briand Pact um, that ultimately results from this idea is that it says states can no longer use a recourse to war as a tool of national policy. And that seems like not a very big deal looking at it from the modern era, but if you look back and see it against a historical backdrop, you realize that was how they had for hundreds of years um, solved their disputes um, when they couldn't otherwise resolve them peacefully. And um, war was a central tool of national policy all the way up until 1928 when they renounced it in the Kelly-Briand Pact. And that really then renouncing that right, taking away the right to legally um, uh, uh, use war to right various wrongs, to, to enforce trade relations, to enforce treaties, to uh, collect debts and all the other things that it used to use um, war for, now means they have to try and figure out other ways of doing those problems. And the problem was they hadn't really thought ahead to exactly what that was going to be. So. Uh, the next 20 years is, is really 18 to 20 years is really a story of their figuring out. So what's going to replace war if we can't use war anymore for those purposes? So one of the uh, one of the main innovations they come up with is this concept of economic sanctions um, that's written in that uh, the League of Nations ends up um, uh, experimenting with against uh, Japan and then against um, against Italy after Abyssinia. Could you talk a little bit about the intellectual foundations of that and how um, sanctions played out pre, uh, uh, pre-World War II? Yeah, so one of the, so as I mentioned, you know, after they passed the Kelly-Briand Pact, they then have the problem of, well, wait a minute, how are we going to enforce these rules? And the, real, the first real challenge is when Japan invades Manchuria uh, in 1931, so not long after everyone has ratified the Kelly-Briand Pact, including both Japan and China, have ratified the pact. Um, and this is clearly in violation of the Kelly-Briand Pact's rules. And the question then becomes, well, how are we going to enforce these rules? We've all just signed a pact saying that we're not going to use war as a tool of national policy. Um, so it'd be kind of an absurd thing to use war to enforce a prohibition on war. But how are we going to enforce the rules? And um, it takes a lot of effort to try and think through the answer to that question. And um, by strange coincidence, um, the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, Henry Stimson, had been uh, had been classmates at Yale um, with Salmon Levinson, the father of the outlawry movement. And Salmon had sent uh, Henry um, uh, a set of writings that he had done about peaceful sanctions for um, international law and particularly for violations of the pact. And his idea was instead of having sanctions of war, we should have sanctions of peace. And um, the sanctions of peace were these economic sanctions effectively um, and denying a, a recognition of illegal conquests of the kind that was happening in Manchuria. 
And Stimson seizes on this idea as a great way to enforce the pact and issues what famously becomes known as the Stimson Doctrine, that is a doctrine of non-recognition um, of illegal conquest, um, which entails a range of economic sanctions, non-recognition of por- passports, not allowing um, stamps issued by the puppet state of Manchuco to be recognized, not engaging in international commerce with this, with Manchuco, um, which is, again, the puppet state that Japan has set up in Manchuria, and refusing generally to acknowledge this as being a legal seizure of territory. That's really the first time economic sanctions had been used to enforce international law in this way. Um, and it becomes the beginning of a new tool for enforcing international law and the rules of the international legal order um, that becomes essential to our modern era. If I could just uh, jump in just to add that um, that part of the story we tell uh, is also trying to understand what how the Japanese understood the change that was brought about in 1928 when they signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact. And from their perspective, they did not fully appreciate the revolutionary change that renouncing the right of war would set into motion. So from their perspective, they did not imagine that by signing the Kellogg-Briand Pact, that would now legitimate economic sanctions being placed on them for their actions in East Asia. So when in 1940, the United States uh, imposed sanctions on Japan for uh, their uh, conquests uh, in Manchuria and um, uh, Indochina and um, other uh um, areas in, in South Asia, from their perspective, that was a violation of the duty of neutrality, which was a core principle of the old world order, which had been f- imposed upon them only several decades before. So from their perspective, at least, the retaliation of Pearl Harbor was a justified action because the United States was violating the principles of law which they thought were still operative. And the United States really had only changed its official position about economic sanctions only six months before Pearl Harbor. So the the when understood from in in the larger arc of history, um, the war in the Pacific really was a war of two clashing visions of how the world was supposed to work. Japan still operating under the principles of the old world order and the United States uh, operating uh, with this new understanding of war being illegitimate but economic sanctions being legitimate. Let's take this story uh, a few years forward to the um, to to during the to during World War II when uh, the U.S. and other powers were trying to figure out how to shape the new uh, the new world order and 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 enshrine these uh, these new principles into uh, into something that uh, hopefully would be more sustainable than um, the League of Nations ended up turning out to be. Yeah. So um, after World War II, um, the question was once again, how do we end war? How do we effectively um, meet the promise of the Kellogg-Briand Pact? And in fact, we describe in the book the process that is gets underway well before the end of the war, as early as 1941. There's meetings beginning to be held in the Department of State on exactly this question, which is, okay, after the war, what institutions are we going to put in place to keep the peace? Um and uh, there's a group convened um, in the Department of State by one of our internationalists, Sumner Wells, who's an undersecretary of state. Um, and he gathers together a bunch of experts to try and think through this question. And it turns out that one of the experts he brings into the group is James Shotwell, another one of our internationalists, who um, 
was a uh, history professor, a medieval history professor at Columbia, but who, by strange coincidence, um, that we describe at some length in the book, um, it actually is the person who ghost wrote the proposal for the Calig-Briand Pact for Briand, um, the French uh, foreign minister, to propose back to the United States. And so they have the very person who had written the Calig-Briand Pact in this working group in the, in the early 1940s. And he really writes the first draft of the UN Charter, um, which we discovered in the archives in the Roosevelt Library. And um, the very first draft, in fact, literally reproduces the Calabrian Pact at the beginning of the draft of the, of the UN Charter, and then lays out a set of institutions to try and make that promise a reality. Um, it gets revised over time, and so the, the, what was the Calabrian Pact now is reflected in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, which prohibits use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of states um, uh, that uh, against sovereign states. And then there's this whole machinery built up around it to try and make that effective. You have the Security Council, and you have the General Assembly, and you have all these institutional um, uh, elements that are there that weren't in the original pact. The original pact was very short. In fact, it could fit on a postcard. Um, and the modern era is really the story of um, taking that promise and making it a reality by building all sets of institutions around it, like the World Trade Organization, like the World Bank, like um, all these international agreements and institutions and organizations that are built on the principle, which assumes you can't use war to get what you want. You've got to use international cooperation instead. So, so two points before we um, before we turn to the uh, the next part of this book. Um, so, while um, while Sumner Wells and, and Shotwell may have written the first draft um, after Sumner was um, uh, lost his position due to a um, rumors of a of a sex scandal on a train. Um, uh, Leo Pasvolsky took over and uh, though uh, shamefully um, did not make more than two sentences of your sentences of your book uh, was my thesis uh, my my undergraduate thesis topic and uh, played a, a, a significant role in, in building out that initial idea to something a little more full um, fully formed um, the other thing to mention here is is China does play a small role Wellington coup um, was invited to as the Chinese uh, representative um, when when the the big four powers were meeting at Dumbarton Oaks, um, except he wasn't invited to all the meetings. So they would um, tell him to show up a few hours late um, after um, the Soviet Union, the UK, and the US had their had their real talks. So he was uh, very upset about having to sweat in the summer, uh, I believe, of 1944. Um, uh, in uh, in in Washington D.C. and not getting to have any of the uh, any of the fun. So one yeah. of um, what, can I just say one thing, Jordan? Sure. I, I think that isn't this right, Ona? We we included a picture in the book precisely because it had Wellington Koo in it. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, he's in there. As is Leo Pavelski. As yeah. is Leo Pavelski. <laughs> um, by the way, um, he does he does appear. Obviously, was a key figure, and you know, one of the hard things here is there's so many interesting, important people um, that we can't give them all their entirely their due, given that we're covering several hundred years of history. But um, I think part of the reason we focused on the people we did is we focused on the people who kind of had the initial innovative insights. Um, what we were really interested in is, who, you know, who's the person kind of setting things in motion. Um, who's the person who has this innovative idea about how to organize things. And Leo, I think he's brilliant in kind of execution and he is really important in kind of making it come to fruition. Um, and he's widely recognized as really one of the great experts um, and without whom arguably um, it would not have been as successful as it was, but he wasn't really, I mean, and he was part of this working group. So he, he was part of that as well, but as far as we could tell, he wasn't really the guy who had the idea. He was the guy that once the idea was there, he was very good at helping to make it a reality. Um, on Wellington Koo, I mean, he's a really important figure here, and we do talk about him several times in the book. Um, one aspect that was, uh, that was sort of an interesting discovery for me, I guess I had sort of known this, but I hadn't really fully appreciated it, was that um, when they're deciding who are going to be the permanent five members of the Security Council who, who are given 
this really uh, prominent role. They're each given uh, a veto over um, authorizations to use force by the new United Nations and the new United Nations Security Council. So this is a really powerful seat. And interestingly, it's the Americans who are arguing for including China on the Security Council, which is something of an irony given that um, they have been at loggerheads for much of the last uh, 50, 60 years on the Security Council, not always, but but frequently disagreeing over over uh, the course of action in the UN. And um, part of the reason the US was so insistent about including China was that they everyone so liked Wellington Koo um, <laughs> and saw him as brilliant, um, as uh, incredibly thoughtful, as a constructive um, member of the of the conversation um, and, you know, as really a important member of the of the diplomacy that had led to the creation of the United Nations. It's also interesting that the reason the Chinese were not included in all the meetings of the Dumbarton Oaks is because the Soviets wouldn't meet with them and the Soviets refused to be in the same room with them, um, which is, again, another irony, um, uh, because that, of course, then, uh, you know, allegiances switch after the fall of Chiang Kai-shek. So. Um, it's uh, it's it's a fascinating part of the story. I think that's underappreciated. My students are always amazed and surprised to realize that actually it was the, the one of the main reasons China is on the Security Council is because the United States insisted on it. And the U.S., by the way, was a little skeptical of including France. So uh, go figure. Um, <laughs> history turns out in surprising ways. For sure. So one of the um, the well, I I I, I excuse your um, I, I accept your. Um, Excuse for not giving more of a, of a Leo his, giving giving Leo more of a shrift. I've I'm, I've now sold. Um, so the next part of your book is 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 my personal favorite. Um, uh, you guys do a, a fantastic job walking through the Nuremberg trials um, and make it a really dramatic and 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 and, and, and shockingly well written account of um, the the legal arguments, which is which I'm sure was not something um, uh, all that easy to do, as you guys mentioned. Um, the the dominant uh, uh, emotion of folks who were in that courtroom was actually one of boredom, um, not one of uh, one of excitement. So could you could you talk a little bit about this uh, Nuremberg narrative and how it plays um, plays into the themes we're talking about uh, right now? Yeah, sure. So um, I think we normally think of the Nuremberg trial um, in 1945 as the trial where the Holocaust was prosecuted. But in fact, at the time, the main purpose of the trial and why the United States pushed so hard to have an international trial was they wanted to prosecute the Nazis for waging an aggressive war under the Kellogg-Briand Pact. And the story that we tell is not just the story of how they managed to convince the president and um, the other allies to join in this international uh, tribunal to try the Nazis, but also this backstory of these two lawyers, one Carl Schmidt and the other uh, Hans Kelsen, who one Carl Schmidt, the so-called crown jurist of the Third Reich, and Hans Kelsen, uh, often considered one of the most important uh, legal theorists of the 20th century, one Nazi, the other Jew, both are longtime bitter enemies who uh, have an ongoing feud over the course of 20 years about the nature of international law and the right of war and how Carl Schmitt hears about the Kellogg-Briand Pact uh, when James Shotwell gives a lecture in Berlin in 1927 and realizes immediately that if the world outlaws war, that Germany is going to be at risk of being prosecuted for waging an aggressive war if they go to war again and lose. And you have on the other side Hans Kelsen, who is a Jew and who is... Schmidt's bitter enemy who works with Justice Jackson when he is the chief prosecutor for the United States in Nuremberg 
using the Kellogg-Briand Pact exactly in the way in which Carl Schmitt argued it would be used. And in fact, Carl Schmitt is interned for two years for his participation in the Nazi regime precisely for violating the Kellogg-Briand Pact. So it's a kind of crazy story of some of a of somebody who's an enemy of the Kellogg-Briand Pact but recognizes the revolution it would bring about ultimately being ensnared by the trap he tried to tell Germany about and on the opposite side of this Jewish Austrian law professor who he had been fighting with for 20 years helps to assemble the legal argument against his compatriots and ultimately against Carl Schmitt himself um, uh, 20 years later. There are not many better um, legal revenge stories uh, than, uh, <laughs> than this one, to be sure. Yes. So coming, um, coming, coming now to the, uh, the world that these new norms create, um, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the concept of outcasting. Um, uh, as we all know, the, uh, China, of course, uh, lost its Security Council seat um, with, uh, for, uh, for a number of years uh, after uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, retreated to Taiwan, where I'm currently recording this from. Um, and uh, that, that, that period of outcasting uh, played, a, played a huge role in China's, uh, uh, in, in, in China's development in the, in, in the 20th century. So, so what was this idea and how was it, how was it implemented um, over uh, post-World War II? Yeah, so the basic idea is that instead of enforcing the rules with war or with force, the way that you enforce them is by creating collective benefits of global cooperation and then pulling back those benefits from anybody who's a bad actor. Um, and so just to give an example, um, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, um, and the the successor to it, the World Trade Organization, the way in which it enforces its rules is not by sending in the United Nations Army, um, which there isn't one, um, to enforce the rules. Um, but the way in which it enforces the rules is that if you break the rules, you put in place an illegal tariff, then the, the state that is harmed by that can sue. And if you're found to be in violation of the rules, then a state is allowed to basically break the rules back. Um, so that is a version of outcasting. It is you're outcasted um, uh, for breaking the rules, and that is you lose some of the benefits of the protection of the rules that you'd otherwise be entitled to as long as you continue to be a rule breaker. Um, economic sanctions are a key part of this too. For instance, human rights violations um, uh, can be met with economic sanctions. For a long time, China um, was met with economic sanctions over its human rights practices. Um, now, you know, this process of enforcing the rules is, is remarkably effective, um, but it does have its downsides. Um, it can be frustrated. Um, it can be um, weakened. And one of the interesting aspects of the post-World War II era, um, and particularly China's relationship to this process of outcasting, is that China has, um, in some notable instances, been a bit of a spoiler um, of, the, of the effort to try and outcast states. Um, so when, for instance, no one would buy oil from Sudan because of its uh, engaging in genocidal practices, China um, was willing to enter into some pretty big oil contracts. And, you know, economically, it was pretty smart because it got a lower price for the oil than otherwise would have. But it then muted the effects of outcasting on the Sudanese government, um, which were intended to prevent it or, or discourage it from continuing its its um, its genocide um, in Darfur. So um, it's not a perfect system. It's not always perfectly effective. Um, but we detail in the book some ways in which it is a powerful tool, although not an all-powerful tool, for enforcing the rules in the post-World War II era. So I think it's important to to reflect a little bit just on um, you know the the, the the twists and turns that uh, the 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 reigning government in Beijing has uh, changed in their worldview towards uh, towards the world order. I mean we're we're coming from in the uh, in the 18th century uh, we have uh, 
we have the emperor telling uh, uh, McCarthy that you know we're the center, we're the celestial empire, we're we're the center of the world. We have no use for your silly trinkets. Um, uh, going from that to um, Wellington Koo with his um, uh, well quaffed um, uh, uh, smooth words at the uh, at the. Um, Dumbarton Oaks, then turning to Mao, who's trying to push global um, revolution. And here we have a, um, a, country, uh, a, a leadership today that, by and large, um, has basically bought in to, to, to organizations like the world, like, like the WTO um, and like the, uh, like the UN Security Council. So, um, you know, even though, uh, of course, there are some, um, you know, China definitely has has some issues with with uh, the 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 global the global state of affairs. The extent to which that the extent to which China has bought in is is a really remarkable one, and I think speaks to the to the power of 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 how these norms have really played out over the past uh, really only seventy five years or so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think um, what the moment we're at is such an interesting one because. We're seeing the moment at which the United States is suddenly expressing ambivalence about a lot of the institutions that it was crucial in creating in the post-war era and is, you know, Trump at least is suggesting a kind of pullback from some of these core institutions, suggested he might be interested in withdrawing from the World Trade Organization and suggested that he might want to defund some UN um, uh practices and activities and suggested that, um, you know, he's not really committed to a lot of these core institutions. And at the same moment, you see, I mean, as the story you opened with suggests, China realizing this is a real opportunity for China to come in and play a role as a um, global leader and try and set the rules of the game in ways that it finds, um, uh, you know, uh, friendly to itself. And I think the real question is going to be, what does that look like? You know, what are those rules? Um, does China envision kind of taking the leadership and taking the reins and playing the role of a responsible world leader in um, ensuring that the rules of the game are played fairly? Um, at, or does it have an idea about how it wants to revamp or reframe those rules? And if so, what would those be? Um, and there's a little bit of a kind of schizophrenia about China's relationship right now to some of these um, to some of these legal orders. I mean, certainly it's been a, it's been an active um, player in the World Trade Organization since it joined, um, and that I think has been a really powerful and productive um, addition to the World Trade Organization. Um, practices, but there have been other places where it has been reluctant to play by the rules. It's party to the Law of the Sea Convention, for instance, um, which is a good thing. The U.S. is not party to the Law of the Sea Convention, interestingly. But then um, when the arbitration between the Philippines and China over uh, China's um, pretty aggressive claims in the South China Sea went against China, um, China refused to recognize the jurisdiction of their arbitral body and has refused to recognize its decision in what seems to be a pretty clear violation of the Law of the Sea Convention. So um, so that raises real questions about, you know, are they going to pick and choose where they're going to follow the rules? And, you know, if so, what does that mean for the future of the legal order? Um, and are they going to play this spoiler role that they have occasionally played um, in kind of snapping up things that are deals because nobody else will trade with bad actors? Um, or are they going to say, you know what, no, you know, we are no longer going to play that role. Like, we actually do expect you to play by the rules. Um, and, you know, we're not going to take the, the deal, um, but we're going to actually hold you to, to meeting the obligations of the Genocide Convention or other um, obligations under the international legal order. And frankly, at this moment, I'm not sure we know what that's going to look like. I mean, I think we know that there's an ambition to play a greater leadership role, and I think that could be a good thing. Um, but uh, we don't really know. Uh, we don't really know how productive it's going to be, what what direction China wants to take those rules in. Um, does it want to, for instance, shut down uh, freedom of speech, um, political organization? Uh, you know, some of the does it want to reflect its own domestic policies onto the international order? If so, I think many of us would find that quite troubling. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot still to be seen about what engagement by China means, um, and I'm not sure we have a good idea of that yet. 
and the the leadership itself also may not really understand what um uh, you know these are these are these are baby steps that um uh, that the Chinese uh, government is uh, is playing on the world stage now and and ones that they were frankly not expected um, to be able to play uh, given um, given the 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 decisions Trump has made over the past year. Yeah, I mean he's created a real opening. I mean he's created a huge vacuum, um, and the question is what's going to fill that vacuum. Um, and China rightly sees an opportunity to fill that vacuum. But as I think you are right to say, I'm not sure they anticipated this opportunity coming so early. Um, and they may not have fully thought through what does that mean to fill the vacuum and how are they going to fill it and what are those rules going to look like. Um, and, you know, much of the much of the next 10 to 20 years and the success of the international legal order could very much turn on the decisions that they make on, on precisely those questions. So as nice as a point... Uh... As, as nice a point as this sounds to to end on, I do have one more question. Um, the uh, one of the the more uh, creative arguments that I thought was particularly well um, uh, played out in your um, in your uh, in your in your book talks about um, just why these uh, these island disputes are so intractable and have had such a hard time. Um, one of the one of the quotes you say is that because the islands. Um, and the islands in, in the South China Sea in particular, but other, you know, small um, disputes around the world uh, were virtually worthless a, cent- a, cent- a century ago makes them such a source of conflict today. So could you exp- expand on that thought, um, explain um, the kind of turning point in history where if you hadn't resolved your border dispute by, um, it's kind of lingered until the present day and, and what that sort of means for, for international law uh, law today? Yeah, so... Um... What we discovered was that um, many of the territorial disputes in the world um, are around islands, which seems like kind of a puzzling thing. Why in the world is it the case that the islands are so, it's not just in the South China Sea, around the world, are such a source of dispute? And there, we realized a few reasons for that. So before 1928, islands, unless they could be used to grow valuable things like spices, um, which was true of some islands, particularly in Asia, um, but islands for the most part were kind of um, a big uh, cost and not a lot of benefit. Um, in a world where conquest was perfectly legal and legitimate and states could take things from you um, if they had a, a reasonably colorable claim for doing so, um, Having an island meant you had to defend it, and defending it meant you had to garrison it, and that could be expensive and difficult and time-consuming. And so islands were generally not really something that states particularly cared to to have unless, again, they were big enough to sustain human life and you could actually have people living on them or growing things on them. And so even when there were these treaties um, uh, between states, uh, they often didn't even bother to mention these islands because nobody considered them really worth mentioning. And um, that changes um, for several reasons. First, in 1928, when conquest gets outlawed and war gets outlawed, well, all of a sudden now having an island doesn't um, mean that you have to defend it. Um, It means that now it's yours um, and others can't take it away from you legally. Um, And so the cost side of the equation um, significantly goes down. Um, and all the lines of sovereignty begin to firm up in 1928. Basically, if you have territory up to 1928, now that's yours. Um, wherever the lines of sovereignty are, are clear, those lines now firm up in 1928 because of the prohibition on war and, and the necessary um, uh, that goes along with that, which is the, the prohibition on conquest. And then add to that two things. One is... Um, in the 70s and 80s, um, a development of technology to be able to begin to explore oil resources under the ocean um, and a realization there's lots of oil under the sea and um, a treaty that comes into place, the Law of the Sea Convention, which um, gives, uh, which lays out the rules for who owns what in the ocean and it gives islands um, at a great deal of territorial sea in what's called an exclusive economic zone, that is the rights to basically exploit the resources under the ocean um, for 200 miles around each island, and it could be up to 350 if it has a large continental shelf around it. So all of a sudden, islands are worth a huge amount when they were before basically worthless. Um, and so that sets off this race to claim uh, claim control over islands, 
Um, but they've run into this problem, which is that there is historically not real clarity about who the islands belong to, and everyone has different claims. Um, and that's the situation we're running into in the South China Sea. You have some areas where there are multiple states who claim to have historic um, rights, and you know they rest on very thin um, ice. You know, Vietnam's claims in some cases are, well, we used to go scavenge these rocks um, to take things off of them when ships would run onto them and leave valuable things behind, or our fishermen used to go and dry their fish on these rocks and therefore they're ours. Or China, um, with its nine dash line is, well, we have maps that show that this was all ours. Um, and we used to patrol this part of the South China Sea. And they're very uh, insistent on, on, uh, on uh, uh, emphasizing. So, and there's not really any easy way to resolve this. I mean, in the modern era, you can't just take it, um, although China is certainly trying to do that. And um, the only way to resolve it is through dispute resolution or through agreement. Um, and thus far, uh, that hasn't brought an end to the disputes, as I mentioned, the arbitration award, which went largely against China, um, China is refusing to recognize. So the only way to get an end to this is basically if all the states who are involved agree to it, and that could take a long time. So um, another one of the main uh, or probably the most important disadvantage of this system, as opposed to the um, the past uh, uh, world order, is of course the, the proliferation of civil wars and um, the, the growth of um, you know, failed states and failing states that that probably would have been gobbled up by by larger, stronger ones in 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 a prior era, but aren't quite with us um, today. So even though you know we've been talking about outlawing war, um, which um, you know, thank God we didn't have a, a great power conflict after World War II, um, but at the same time there are certainly downsides like the uh, the difficulty in resolving these sorts of territorial disputes, as well as um, you know the proliferation of of, of different types of um, conflict. But um, instead of getting into that, I have one final question for um, both of you. Uh, so coming back to, to where we started with this idea of, uh, you know, changing the, um, the sort of uh, international norms. Basically, it took two entire world wars um, to really uh, have nations reshape the way they think about this sort of thing. So I'm curious, um, you know, regardless of whether or not change would be for, for good or for ill or um, in China's liking or not to China's liking, um, do, do uh, and this is a question for both of you, do you think it, it, it takes this sort of global international, um, you know, cataclysmic conflict um, to, to reshape the way humans think about these sorts of things? Um, or can, can subtle progress, can subtle change over time actually um, have, um, have really dramatic effects? Well, I think the story of our, well, certainly I hope the answer to that is it doesn't take cataclysmic <laughs> conflict um, to bring about change, because if it does, we're in some serious trouble. Um, well, then again, uh, I mean, it, maybe we don't need change. Maybe, maybe this is a, a halfway decent uh, point of equilibrium where, um, you know, the, yes, we do have, we do have a, a number of civil wars and civil conflicts, but um, you know, there hasn't been a, a great power war for the past, uh, um, you know, since 1945. Yeah. So I think that the story of the book is that, yes, it took um, the war to resolve the fight over what exactly the pact meant. Um, there were states that didn't buy into the idea that the pact actually meant no more war, um, Japan and Germany and Italy in particular. Um and to resolve that fight, the only way to resolve it was was war, um, it turned out. But, but a lot of the story of the book is also about incremental change. So is about how once the pact was put in place, the really interesting story is that the effort of uh, the internationalists to figure out what would it mean to create a world order based on the foundational rule that states can't use war to get what they want. They've got to find other ways to get what they want from each other um, and that diplomacy was going to have to be based not on the assumption that war was the backup but that um, that they, they were going to have to find other ways to back it up um, and um, and so it's it, it is really a story about how incremental change can over time bring about uh, a real uh, significant reorienting of the international legal order that I should say can be good and it can be bad um, and we end the book uh, by saying that 
we may be in the midst of, of incremental change headed in the wrong direction, um, that we could be in the midst of a moment when we're weakening the, um, the commitment to our prohibition on, on war um, and the prohibition on use of aggressive force in a variety of ways and withdrawing from these international institutions that are key to keeping the peace. Um, and that incremental change can cause a breakdown in the system. Um, and that could end up leading to a cataclysmic um, conflict. And that's certainly, you know, what part of what we're trying to warn against in the book is, is not to let that happen and be careful about imperiling the world order that we have, which has been successful at keeping unprecedented peace, not without its problems, obviously, but still unprecedented peace for much of the last seven decades. I, I would <clears throat> I would just uh, add to that, but by just distinguishing between um, you know, a kind of revolution and evolution. So fundamental change in the world order probably can't come about unless there is some cataclysm. And that's because in order to get people to in order to get everyone in the world to change and to converge on the same basic set of rules uh, requires some incredible reason to change, which uh, would probably only happen if there was some terrible conflict with one side winning and imposing its rules over uh, the other half. And that's partly what happens uh, from 1928 to 1945, when the United States is almost the last nation standing and imposes its it, the, 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 the set of rules which had developed from 1928 on on the, the, the part of the world that lost. But the evolutionary story where you take the basic framework and then you develop institutions and those institutions develop new techniques, and then that, that doesn't require a cataclysm. That requires people thinking about how to improve the world and working together. So, for example, the, uh, part of the story that we tell in the book is the, the new developments in sanctioning and outcasting, which led to the Iran nuclear deal, which is a very sophisticated form of sanctioning Iran from the global banking system, which took a lot of thought and trial and error and sanctioning to develop. Now, that is an incremental change, but it was an incremental change that takes place within the broad framework where you're not supposed to go to war in order to resolve the dispute. You're supposed to engage in some form of outcasting. So in the developments in the United States, for example, have not been promising in the last year with the hollowing out of the State Department and the Foreign Service, like these are the people who are supposed to think about evolution, evolutionary change in the basic framework. And for, and for the United States government to retreat from thinking diplomatically, to think, uh, from thinking about how to make incremental change, we're risking uh, making some kind of fundamental change which we'll all regret. So it's interesting to think about, um, and you sort of alluded to this, the role of um, you know technology and um, and 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 how these these sorts of things play out. So you know the the creation of the, the atom bomb is of course the most obvious um, example. But you know if the international financial system wasn't as closely tied together, um, Iran wouldn't have any exposure to Western banks. Um, so the U.S. wouldn't have been able to to, to, to inflict any pain on that sense. So maybe um, you know another big push in evolution is is not just the the norms but also you know things like drones or um uh you know cyber war other other things that that require or or may not require new um new international regulation um or or norm development that um these countries have to have to have to grapple with yeah for example uh cryptocurrency so cryptocurrency may very well be a way in which states do an end run around the global banking system so 
as the as the world changes, the rule uh, the institutions have to adapt to these changes, and it's very worrying if a major player like the United States cedes that ground because we're not sure what will fill the void. So on that ominous note, I think we're going to call it a day. Thanks. Um, thanks so much, you two. And I really, uh, I really couldn't recommend this book any higher. It's, uh, something if I had gotten a PhD, something I wish I would have written. Um, it's really clear, has a lot of interesting, uh, characters and a, and a real narrative thread, which you would not expect from a book about, um, international legal, uh, intellectual history. So I, I want to say thanks again for coming on the show, for writing such an interesting piece. And, um, hope to have another excuse to sort of not really talk about China with you two guys at some point in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was really enjoyable. Thank you so much, Jordan.